Normally we have a funny video, but that wasn't very funny, but we're going to get to that in just a second because I think um, that statement that Kevin Hart just made right there, uh, the mom, I don't have time for this, is something that a lot of us feel and think when it comes to the Bible. I think it's really relatable um, because um, most of us, I think actually, irregardless of where we are in our our faith journey, whether we're kind of lukewarm to Christianity or we've been a Christian for a long time, um, we, we want to understand the Bible more. Like deep down, we think that there could be something special there, uh, but we just don't make time to understand it and break it down. Um, and then on the other hand, we also have probably had some people in our lives, a parent or a grandparent or somebody in our lives who was kind of like Kevin Hart's mom um, and said something to the effect of, you need something, something that will keep you grounded or faithful through your life, through your journey. And they'll even guilt trip you and pressure you into reading your Bible, like putting your money in the Bible, which is a very strange concept. Uh, But hey, I guess he read two chapters, so it wasn't too bad after all. Uh, But many of our parents or grandparents or somebody in our lives have maybe spoken that word to us. Um, But the reality is we hear that. We um, hear even me say that sometimes on Sundays, and uh, we don't really do anything about it. Because in reality, we know if we go home and we actually try to pull this thing out, it's really big, It's really long. If you read the Bible in a year, it takes you about six chapters a day, over 365 days to get through it. There's some really weird moments and stories in here that just really leave you scratching your head. There's some really boring stuff that you're like, why is this even relevant? And then, I mean, there's so many other layers. We're going to talk a lot more about that stuff um, next next week. Um, But then you have different translations. This is NIV. This is for children. Some of you, this is your Bible. We're going to talk about that as well. Um, But my hope is over the next four weeks in this series is that uh, you will be better equipped to read the Bible as a grown-up. And it's not going to be an exhaustive conversation. We're not going to get through it all in four weeks. Um, This is going to be a foot-in-the-door kind of a conversation that if you choose on your own to push that door open and dive in, you're going to be much better equipped, hopefully by the end of this, to do that. But unfortunately, we just don't have the time on a Sunday. I mean, it'd take us months and months and months and months to even just kind of glean the surface of understanding the Bible. Um, But for the four weeks that we do have together, I want to have a conversation with you that I kind of wish, looking back, that someone would have had with me as I transitioned from being a child with a childlike faith and a childlike understanding of the Bible into adulthood. Because more than likely not, you did not make that transition very well. Most people don't make that transition to adulthood very well. Um, And so we're left with a childhood understanding of God. We're left with a childhood understanding of the Bible. And um, that, that doesn't help us to navigate adulthood very well. It actually, and I'm not trying to place blame here. I'm not trying to blame you as parents or grandparents or anybody like that. Um, this is not a blame thing. This is just a matter of fact thing that I think we all need to kind of acknowledge. Um, that it leaves children, it may have left you in a bit of a bind because you don't have a lot of good options. You become an adult. You're trying to understand how do I take these stories that I read in the kids' Bible and translate them 
them into adulthood, and it doesn't work very well, and so you're kind of left with only a handful of options. I could come up with only three. They may sound differently to you, but here's what I think are the options for most kids becoming adults today and how they interact with the Bible. The first option is figure it out on your own. Except the truth is, uh, as of last year, um, the Barna Group did a, a wide-ranging research study, and it's, they discovered that um, 66% of Americans barely opened their Bible all year long, right? 66%. That's the vast majority. And then there's a group that said they opened it maybe once a week, and only like 9% opened it or claim they opened it every day. Or maybe they opened it and then they shut it again. I don't know how they measured that. Um, but if only, um, only about 30-some percent of people are actually engaging with the Bible daily, I'm guessing most people are not going with option one and trying to figure out how the Bible interacts with an adult in a grown-up life. The second option is you fake it in hopes that you make it. My personal opinion, you can disagree with this, but I think this is where the majority, the vast, overwhelming majority of Christians today sit in number two. You kind of fake it, hoping nobody notices that you really don't know half the things that you feel like you probably should know, and so you kind of feel a little guilty about that, and, and, and then you act like you know, you know the Bible better than you actually do, and we just all kind of go around faking it, hoping that nobody realizes that we don't really understand the Bible like we think we should, especially for those of us who've been going to church for a long time, and you're like, you know, 30, 40 years in, you should probably know something, but you're not sure that you know a whole lot compared to when you started, and so I think that's actually the majority of people. The, also, the un unfortunate thing part of the reason I think that this is the vast majority is because of all the times people on the outside of the Christian world look on the inside of the Christian world and said, y'all are kind of a bit of hypocrites. Y'all don't follow what your Lord preached. And I think part of the reason that that is, is because most Christians just simply don't know what they believe or what the grown-up version of this actually truly says and stands for. And so, by nat nature, number three option is the last one, and that is walk away or avoid Christianity altogether, which is the growing trend in the Western world, in Europe and uh, the Western um, North America uh, today, is a steep and continual decline of Christianity. Uh, and it's not because what the Bible teaches or what God teaches isn't valuable, it's just that we don't know how to interact with the Bible. And so we're left with just a really unfortunate set of options. And so today, I want to talk about one of the central issues, which is in all of those options, or why those options are the options that they are, and that is the Bible. And I'm going to break it down over the next four weeks, but today I want to focus on just one aspect it's like two in one, okay? Uh, but, and, and for some of you, especially if you grew up going to church and love the Bible's the Bible and you believe the Bible and it's just all perfect in your mind and your heart, and that's fantastic. But this may make you a little uncomfortable. But I hope for most of us, we can go into this with a little bit of an 
openness and a willingness to entertain what I'm about to say in kind of the, the one main point that I want to talk about today. And that is this, that one of the main reasons the Bible doesn't transition well from childhood to adulthood is that Christians tend to oversimplify and idolize the Bible. Oversimplifying, taking a very complicated, dynamic, and intricate book, it's oversimplification, but, and dumbing it down. And in addition to that, idolizing it, in other words, putting it at or exceeding the value or significance of the God that they say that they believe in. And they put it right up there. That's what I think really holds us back these days from that transition from childhood to adulthood. Let me give you a few examples because I know some of you are like, okay, you're going to need to break that down. I will break that down for you, okay? Um, one of the first ways in this this plays out is in oversimplification. Um, in other words, you all, I did, the same way that many of you did, is we all get the Bible in one book. Just by a show of hands, did anybody not get the Bible as one book? No, of course not, right? You get it. This is the only way you can get it. You go on Amazon... That's the way it comes, okay? Two-day shipping, all right? Some days it'll overnight it, too. It's pretty impressive. Um, you, all, you get all of the Bible in one single book. And it's like, okay, well, that's interesting, Taylor. How else are you going to get it? Well, that's the reality is um, it, it, by getting it all in one book, it gives you and me and our parents and our grandparents, especially if you did like a ceremony where everybody came up and you got a Bible, it gives you the sense the false sense that this thing came like floating down from heaven. Oh, somebody was there to grab it, got it, okay? And then here you go, all right? That was pretty good. The, it was a lot better than when I practiced it this morning the, on the drive-in. Oh, wow, it really echoes. I should sing more. Okay, um, yeah. So anyways, that's not how the Bible came to be. Okay? The word Bible in Greek is books, plural, like many things. Okay? In Hebrew, the word Bible is scrolls, plural. It's really not Bible, it's Bibles. There shouldn't be a singular version because it's plural. There's many. It's, it's more of a library, less of a book. And that's why it's a little confusing. We say this is a book, and then we have a bunch of books inside of it, which is also not true because they're not all books. Some of them are letters. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are narrative. It gets really, really complicated, and by putting it all in one, making it really nice fake leather because doesn't that just say holiness is, you know, making it imitation leather, um, you know, we kind of oversimplify something that in reality is many stories, some of which were shared only verbally for thousands of years. That's how they passed it down was verbally. People, I kid you not, would memorize it from start to finish and they would share it verbally. And then it became scrolls on things like papyrus. And then over many thousands of years, it was edited, adjusted, especially in the New Testament, went through what was called textual criticism and endured multiple authorships over the millennia. And then, in addition to that, over hundreds of years, in, in the Old Testament case, over thousands of years, came to be one kind of holistic document. That's complicated. 
That's a lot, right? And yet when you get it, it's all in one. And you don't get a sense of the significance of everything that's going on in here. And it gives you the sense as a like Judeo-Christian believing person that this is more simple than it really is. In fact, if you went to a first century, okay, we're talking zero to 100 AD, and you took this and gave this to them, they would be like, what you doing? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why, why are these books together in the order in which, why, why would you even combine them? Because for them, this doesn't make the most sense. For them, this makes the most sense. This picture right here, this makes sense. This is Isaiah which is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. This is uh, the Dead Sea Scroll. It's a scroll, you can see the rest of the roll right there. Um, and this was one of the scrolls that they found in the Dead Sea. It was probably uh, copied in about 125 BC, so before Christ, okay? And it is one of the most complete works of Isaiah that we have. It's, it's really quite incredible. If you brought this to a first century Judeo-Christian believing person, they'd say, this makes sense to me. Because this is how they read the Bible. They would go into the temple and they would meet um, for worship. And the, the priest there or the rabbi would get the scroll out of the scroll closet, would bring it over, unroll it, and they would read from Isaiah. They didn't have this idea of the Bible so much. But why does this have authority to them? Think about this. This has authority, this is significant, but it's not in the Bible. They don't have the Bible. They don't have a context for what we call the Bible today. It was a scroll, and that's it. Here's another example. This is a copy of John. This is Papyrus 66. And the reason it's Papyrus 66 is it because it comes after 65. Let that sink in for you, okay? 65, okay, anyways. All right, so this is Papyrus 66, and it's one of the most comprehensive uh, accounts or, or copies of the Gospel of John. It's not exactly what's in your Bible, though. It's different. And that's because we have many copies of what we call the Book of John, but it's not actually a Book of John. It's a letter that was written on Papyrus and copied and copied and copied and copied. We don't have the originals of the Book of John. But if you took that document to a first century Christian and this document to a first century Christian, they'd say, I don't get this. But that letter right there, they'd say, oh yeah, I've heard of that. Or maybe I've heard that read. Or we had a copy of John's account and it was read in our church and then we passed it along to another church, to the other church. And they had some rich people in there so they actually could pay for someone to copy it down so we could have the letters from John but it's not in the Bible, but yet it's important. Why is it important? Why does it matter even though it's not part of the Bible? Here's another thing, the children's Bible. Here's another way we oversimplify this. The children's Bible looks modern, right? What would you think if they took, you took this to a first century Judeo-Christian person? And they're like, Who, who's that guy, you know? What's going on here, right? They'd have no idea. And I'm not sure exactly the solution, but the problem is this makes it 
engaging and interesting to kids, but you don't realize this is really old. This is really ancient. I was walking through a museum over in Israel and just looking at perusing all the items or whatever, and I came across this item right here. And I started reading the description and light bulbs started going off. I'm like, I know this story. This is um, from the king uh, Sennacherib. Uh, from, he was the king of the Assyrian Empire in its glory and its heyday and its military prowess. And they went to war and attacked Israel and they took out the northern kingdom of Israel. They went all the way to the doorstep of Jerusalem right outside. And this, this is his account of it. And they said, and then we walked away. We left Jerusalem. And you'll never guess what you read about in the scroll of Isaiah and, and uh, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. You read the exact same account from a different perspective. But they all agree the king came, Assyrian king came all the way to the gates and they left Jerusalem. It's the same story. This one is written on a clay cylinder and the other one is written in here. But it's old. It's history. And we look at this and we don't realize how old and historical it is. And so we've oversimplified it. The fact that many stories in the Bible are ancient history. Yeah, but Taylor, okay, why does it matter what it looks like? Why does it matter if it's new or old? I'll get to it in just a second. Here's another thing. We rarely acknowledge the many biblical authors and editors. Now, some of you are thinking, whoa, I, I, thought, I thought God arranged the Bible. What are you saying there's authors and editors? Where was God in this? Well, God was involved, but so were humans. If you look at Deuteronomy, which is uh, one of the first books in the Bible, in uh, the Torah, in the Old Testament, and the book of Deuteronomy, um, if you get a study Bible, which I love study Bibles, not trying to discount study Bibles, but if you have a study Bible at home and you open to the first page of Deuteronomy, it gives you a bunch of context and pictures and all this stuff, and it would always say a quick look, and it gives you the audience and the date approximately when it was written, the theme, and the author. And the author, it says here, is Moses, as if this is fact, like for sure we know this was Moses. But then it gets really weird because then you go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, the very end, and you read this, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. And until this moment, you probably didn't connect the fact that, wait, how's Moses writing this? Was he like, before he died? But then it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Since then, whoever is writing this says, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Time out a second. Who's writing this? Again, Moses, before he died? That doesn't really make sense. Someone who had to have enough context to know, no, seriously, God has done nothing like he did with Moses since the moment that this was written. Because why? Because there were other editors and commentators that spoke into the biblical story over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. It's not as simple as we sometimes make it. But then you start to think, as I did as a young teenager becoming 20-something, I thought to myself, well, then if there's multiple human authors, can we really trust what it says? 
Is the Bible authoritative? Is the Bible, does the Bible even matter? I began to question that. One more. Children's Bibles often tell the stories, not the why behind the stories. Great example of this is Jonah and the... Yes. Some, like two of you said the correct version. There's no whale. It's a fish. For starters, yes. And what is the title of the story? Jonah and the big fish. And really, all I remember as a kid about this story was the fish. Or the whale, as I knew it then. But what's so funny about... What, what's... I don't even know what. No, it's not money. Did it fall out of here? Well, there you go. All right, I'll look at that later. I don't know. Anyways, um, you'll never know. Oh, is it money? I get it now. You're going to get the video. That was good. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, hey, y'all, it's been in here the whole time. It, does grow, it doesn't grow on a tree. It's in the Bible. Um, yeah, that would be so great. Okay, Jonah and the big fish. Yeah, well, you put your treasure where your heart is. That's what Jesus says, so that's what you put in the Bible. Okay, yeah, that got really Christian-y there for you. Okay, so Jonah and the big fish. But what's so funny, out of 90-some verses in the book of Jonah, it's a relatively short book, how many verses mention a fish? Three. Yet the entire story is known by, and you know it by, the fact that there's a fish. When that's not the point of the story at all. It's all about Jonah and God and their relationship. And it's a very dry and sarcastic and funny story. But you'd never know that. Because all we know about it is Jonah and the fish. Why? Because it's telling the story, not the why behind the story. And we oversimplify it. Okay, well, Taylor, then why, why does the why matter? It goes back to that thing that kind of Kevin Hart's mom alluded to, and maybe some of your loved ones have alluded to you as well. You need something that will keep you grounded and faithful. You need to get yourself into your Bible. But what we miss as adults, what we miss in that transition from childhood to adulthood and what we overwhelmingly miss as Christians is the fact that we, we quote the Bible, we read the Bible, we look up questions in the Bible, we make the Bible almost equivalent to God himself. Where do we go for answers? Well, we just go looking in the Bible. We Google the Bible. We make it all about the Bible. And we take all of that and we put it in a nice gold-plated binding with imitation leather, and we add some pictures, and it's kind of nice because it brings us back to our children's Bible, right? And our focus, our focus becomes the qualities of the Bible instead of the qualities of God. Because the Bible doesn't keep us grounded, God keeps us grounded. And if we let him, he can do that through the Bible. But he's the reason for the Bible. See, we have this subconscious statement to say you need something. In reality, we should be saying you need someone that will keep you grounded and faithful. 
If you took that statement, you need something to a first century Christian, right? Within the first 70 or so years after Jesus, and you said, you need something that will keep you grounded. And you said, here's the Bible. They would have said, I don't need that. I have someone and his name is Jesus. And I saw him and I walked with him. I saw his death. I saw him rise again. I heard his disciples. I saw the stories, the miracles. It was amazing. That's all I need. And yeah, Paul, he's written some letters. They were really good. They clarified some things. They fixed some things. And, and James, Jesus' brother, yeah, that guy, yeah, he's pretty good. He had some really practical advice. And, and Jude, he had some good thoughts. And Peter, he had some good thoughts as well. And it was really great what Luke did with his account of Jesus and all that stuff. But first and foremost, it's someone, not something. Yet how often pastors stand up here in their platform or their pulpit or something like that, and they yell out this. And they say, this is the word of God. In the beginning, John said, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, I told you, everybody, the Bible was up here with God, and then it came down to us. See, I went down in tone. It came down to us, and we got it. See, it was with God. What else, John, did you say a couple verses later? Oh, the Word became flesh. Well, it's fake leather. Maybe if we put real leather on it, then it's, you know, it's more fleshy. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Really? That's kind of strange. Okay, yeah, it does dwell on my shelf in my house somewhere in the basement. We have seen his glory. His glory, I mean, it's okay. The glory of the one and only son. The word of God. The word of, this is the word of God. Yeah, you can call it the word of God, but make sure you make it a lowercase. Because we're talking about uppercase God. We're talking about uppercase word and the uppercase word of God that brings life, that is the vine, that is the thirst quenching water is God through his son, Jesus. It's not something, it's someone. And if you pull out this someone, you don't have this something. The chicken and the egg, this didn't come first. This did. This is a result. This is an outcome of something that someone did. Who someone was. How someone taught and led his people. Christianity is not based on something. It's based on someone. It's not based on a book. It's based on a relationship. And if it sounds like I'm devaluing the Bible, the truth is I am a little bit because too often we place it too close to God. It only exists because of God. It is not equal with God. That's different religions. There are other religions, other major world religions that put this next to God. That's not Christianity. That's not what we believe. This did not die for us, forgive us. This does not love us. It just tells us about the one who loves us. We are not a written religion. 
Christianity is not a written religion, it is a relational religion. Let me give you an analogy. Hopefully this is somewhat helpful. This is my passport, okay? If you wanna you know, impersonate me and go travel the world, I guess you can have one, okay? This is my passport. Does it provide verification, identification, and information about me? Yes. Will it help you to know me and know where I've been and a little bit about what I've done in my life? Yes. Is this me? No. I can tell you because I look at this picture and it's a lot younger. Is this me? No. If you memorize everything in this passport, does this mean that you and I have a good relationship? No. If you can spit facts out above, about me, we do this. Christian circles, there's things about like, hey, I can tell you all these facts. I've memorized this book and all that stuff. Does that inherently mean then that we're good if you know all the things in here? No, of course not. Does it mean that you even trust me? No, doesn't mean you have faith in me. No, it's nothing to do with that. Without me, would there be this? No. Without this, would there be me? Yeah, I'd still be here. Just like God. If you don't have every single book in this, every single letter, every single word in that Bible, does it still work? Yeah. It does. And I know that because if you grew up Catholic, you have more books in your Bible than mine does. If you have the original first copy of the King James Bible, some of you are King James fans, thou's and thouists, your version of the Bible has a lot more books than the current version of the King James Bible. More chapters even in some of the existing books. Interesting. So did Christians get better? Did they get smarter? Did our faith change? No, of course not. There's just a lot more than just these talking about these books talking about Jesus. And the truth is, just like we can't agree on a lot of things as human beings, we couldn't all agree on what exactly makes up the key components of the story of God. We need to understand what the Bible is and, wasn't, and what it isn't. Is it powerful? Yes. Is it life-changing? Absolutely. Is it, can it be an authority in our life? For sure. Why? Not because of what it is. It's about who it tells you about. God. Why? Answering these questions from earlier that I kind of left hanging. Why does the Bible matter if it's new versus old? is because if it's new, I think it gives us the false sense that God hasn't loved us for very long. Since like 1991. When the truth is, in this version, you come to realize he's been trying to love humanity for thousands and thousands of years. I, the Isaiah scroll and, and John, why do those matter if they're on their own or together? Because they tell you about God. Can we trust the Bible? It's the wrong question. 
The question is, and this is what I got wrong growing up, it's not about trusting the Bible, it's about trusting God. That's where you gotta start. And all my issues were with the stories that this document told. And I was missing the someone behind the story, the main character, in fact, of this whole book. The main character of this book is not you or I, it's God. Think about it this way. Christians in the room, ask yourself this. Did you have to read the entire Bible to put your faith in God and follow Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like what if most of us read like 10% of it or something? And then we're like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah. I mean, my version of the Bible for the most part was the kid's Bible up until I came to faith. Why? How is that possible? Because the Bible isn't God. God is God. God is someone worthy of our trust who loves us unconditionally. Do I read about it in the Bible? Yeah. Is it a signpost pointing towards God? Absolutely. But it is not a requirement to read through all of numbers to know and love and trust your heavenly father. The Bible is thousands and thousands and thousands of years of people getting to know things about God, writing them down, and God working through them and in them to write that down and carry it through thousands and thousands of years so you and I today can read it and say, wow, he did this then. Wow, this is what we were created for. Here's our purpose. Here's how we should live. These are rules and principles of life that can span centuries and millennia because they're true, because they come from our heavenly father, because they come from our creator. Christianity doesn't rise and fall on the Bible. Again, hundreds of years, Christianity didn't have the Bible. It took a 300 years before we even got close to this, yet Christianity thrived. We, people, we've lost letters that should be in the Bible. Like first and second Corinthians should really be first and fourth Corinthians, because we lost two and three. Just straight up, just telling you, we lost them. Somebody lost them, it wasn't me, but somebody lost them. How do we know that? Because in what we call second Corinthians, Paul's like, hey, did you get my other letter? And we're like, no, we didn't get it, my bad. We, lo we lost, somebody got it, Bob got it, he dropped the ball, blame Bob. You know, I don't know, right? It's why Catholics, you have more books, right? I mean, Christianity after Jesus didn't have any of the things we have now, and it thrived. Why? Because it saw the word of God. The church and the beginning saw the word of God come down to have, from heaven to dwell with us, to serve us, to die for us, and rise again for us. And I just think we have done such a disservice as Christians, oversimplifying a very complicated thing because it's scary, because it's harder when it's not black and white. So we make something black and white thinking it's better. And unfortunately, when you transition from childhood, which can feel very black and white to a very gray adulthood, when you have questions and ethical issues and things that are not straightforward, you don't know what to do about it. And your heavenly father says, I'm right here. And you're like, I'm trying to find you, God. I'm Where are you at in there? It's like, this is about me, but I'm right here. I'm with you. We need to stop idolizing the Bible over the main character of the Bible, God. 
The world today and future generations see the Bible and Christians, Christianity as the same thing, as, and God as the same thing, and it's not. We are not Christians because the Bible said so. All the Bible did is document when we were first called Christians at Antioch. We weren't even Christians. Jesus didn't say, hey, y'all Christians. No, 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 it was a derogatory term that was added. The word Christian only shows up three times in the Bible. It's not in there. We're not a written religion, we're a relational religions. We, we are Christians because we follow, because we trust, because we grow in and through Jesus. And we read about him through Mark's perspective and John's perspective and Luke's perspective and Matthew's perspectives. And these accounts matter, why? Because they tell the story of the word of God. And that's such a critical distinction that we collectively need to do better at in helping the next generation, and I think for some of us, helping ourselves to better start to open this and read it for what it is and who it tells us about. Christianity is not based on something, it's based on someone. It's based on someone. And that's who we need to trust, and that's who we need to follow. And that's just one week of four of the Bible for grownups. If you would, bow your head and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a perspective that's probably new for some of us, that some of us struggle, are struggling right now with, because it starts to upend some perspectives that we've had about our faith maybe for a long time. Or for some of us, this is such new information, we're trying to wrestle with it and process it and figure it out. How does this help us? How does this hurt us? Where do I fit into this equation? So Lord, help all of us today, in this one week of four, to realize the most important thing is you and your love, and your grace and your commitment, your covenant with us. And do we read about that in the Bible? Of course we do, but we read about it because it's about you. And it's about how you've tried to have relationships with us for so many years and how we can learn things from the people who came before us to be better people who move forward. Lord, help us to realize that you are the one. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the life giver and life transformer. And that's who we need to follow. That's who we need to put our trust in. That's the relationship that we have to wrestle with and get right. Because once we get that right, it opens up the Bible and makes that story so much richer and fuller and we don't have to get caught in the little nitty gritties of it. We don't try to use the Bible in incorrect ways to hurt people, to bring people down. We don't have to use your story to hurt your children as so often we do as Christians. But instead our hearts and our minds and our bodies long for you. And that is the center of our faith, of our purpose, of our lives. Lord, help us.
to write our hearts and our minds on that. Give us the strength and the wisdom to trust that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.